0: Welcome, this is an audio recording from the Northwest Coalition for Healthy Intimacy. The topic is Attributes of Healthy Living, Healing from and Preventing Addiction in Our Families, presented by Rill and Stephen Croshaw during our Restoring Intimacy Conference in September 2014. Other recordings from that event are available on our website, www.healthyintimacy.net. We are pleased to be here today. And the, uh, the opportunity for us to speak to you is important to, to our effort in working the, uh, the program of SA Lifeline Foundation. The, uh, uh, the purpose of our foundation is providing individuals, couples and families hope for recovery from sexual addiction and betrayal trauma. Um, very interestingly, as we've, when we first started our foundation, we didn't recognize the betrayal trauma element very well. And this is a relatively new understanding. And as Jeff talked about it, it's such an important component. So the purposes of this foundation are based upon our own experience in our own recovery. About six years ago, we started SA Lifeline because of our experience over a period of decades of struggling with this issue. So struggling with the issue myself with sexual addiction and my wife with betrayal trauma. And in this process and in this struggle, uh, repeated attempts to figure it out and repeated failures, we finally recognized that there were ways to do this and to work this effort of recovery. And by miracles we were able to stay together in our marriage through this process after we began to learn something about what we would have been great to know in the first place, we determined that it would be well for us to start this foundation. And as part of that, it's necessary for us to tell our story. We, however, as we do tell our story, hope that you will recognize that we don't want to make this about us. This is about the circumstances surrounding the challenges of sexual addiction and betrayal trauma. And recovery and we will throughout this presentation talk from a personal perspective of our own experience. So Ril's going to start out and she's going to help us understand some of the models that you see on this handout that we have.
1: Well we're talking about healing and protecting families. We we very seldom use the word prevent, we talk about uh, protection and so we're going to talk about healing and protecting families. Test. Okay. Your hand up. Um, because, and we're hopefully going to end with this as well. We have a, a husband and a father who is healthy, honest, humble in his efforts, um, connected with God and with others. and and a healthy mother, and you see the, the dotted line, they have a few ups and downs, we all do, it's called marriage in this life, and, and so they're, but it's not jagged and uh, like, like a disconnected family and marriage in chaos. So both of those individuals are healthy, they're working on being healthy individuals, they have a healthy marriage, and they, it is a natural consequence that you will have healthy children. And so how do we protect children? You've heard of some of the things that we have already been talked about about by LeVar and uh, by Jeff. Educated parents, uh, we really like the Good Pictures, Bad Pictures book over here. It's a great start with children talking about how to talk about sexuality and pornography. Jackie. Is going to talk about healthy sexuality later on. Um, and there's also a manual over here on this table called Protecting Families. It has talking points for different ages of children. We like to start out at least by the age of three when you can communicate on what is healthy, What are, how do we use our healthy bodies, our healthy sexuality, even at the age of three. We can talk about healthy and appropriate ways. We probably are not going to talk about the word pornography with the three-year-old. They're not going to understand that, perhaps. But the age of exposure now is getting younger and younger. Between 9 and 11, depends on who you're talking to. So exposure, When when we talk prevention, many of us go to, we're going to prevent this from happening. Not a chance. Not a chance in this world that we will prevent exposure. Yes, we can protect our children, and, and we can work with our children to help them understand. So, filters. Very quickly. So many of us, you know, we put our computers in a, a common place in the home. We filter them. It's only, it's very wise. That must be done. But when the mother called me about a year ago, I don't know who she is. She said, I was given your name. My now nine-year-old husband accessing porn on his DS for a year. And he was severely addicted. How did she She know? Because he cried and cried and said, I can't stop. I keep going back. That's one of the addiction, part of addiction, that there are consequences. When we stop, we can't stop. When we keep going, we can't stop. And so, there, yes. yes, filters she are important. She had a she had a uh, filter. And she had a uh, password on that. But children are really more tech savvy than most of us. Well, I'll see for myself. Um, non-shaming communication that is non-shaming. Um, oh, I'm going to go back to filters. On essaylife.org is a really great video by Dr. Jason Carroll. And he talks about in the middle of that. It's about section seven. He talks about teaching children internal filtering. That is the only thing that we know that will help protect. The internal filter is critical. That is teaching them that they're loved, teaching them with non-shaming ways, connected to parents and, and others around them, teaching them who they are as a spiritual being, and that they are part of a big picture. We're not going to talk religion necessarily, but there is a big picture, and we are all spiritual beings. And when we teach a child that, it helps them have more of an internal internal filter. And those kinds of communications with children um, will help. It's not going to prevent exposure. It's going to help protect them. Um, And then we're going to go to
0: the non-shaming. We'll talk about shaming for just a minute. So... The average age of exposure, we don't know exactly for a young man, but it's somewhere around nine years old. Some say 11. My experience was age six. And most of the guys that I meet in the rooms of recovery had very early exposure, and that exposure generally came from some accidental access. A friend may have shown them pictures at school. A friend, they may have been at a friend's house, and he shows them this website. All of these various ways that a young person is exposed. And what Rill was talking about if the first exposure has come to them without any conversations with their parents about healthy sexuality, then this first experience is going to be not just something they don't understand, but it is going to be potentially shaming for them because they'll immediately recognize that it's not, it's probably not the right thing to be doing to be looking at pictures of the human anatomy that are in salacious ways. So, in my experience at age six, I found a magazine in my brother's chest of drawers. I had never seen pornography before that, but I remember that experience vividly. I took the mag after I looked at the magazine, I took it to my mother. And I don't recall what she said to me. I think I would have recalled if she had shamed me, but I don't recall any conversations that were specific about what I had just experienced. And so that just kind of went on. In fact, in my entire life, my mother's been gone for a while, about 23 years, 24 years. I have really never had a conversation with her about healthy sexuality or with my father. And both of them knew that I was involved with pornography and masturbation. Let me give you another example of a person that I know and mm-hmm. met in the rooms of recovery that when his father caught him with a pornographic magazine, and he was about my age and so this would have been like, could have been in the early 60s or late 50s, his dad said, if I ever catch you with one of these again, I'll beat you. Now, what do you think the response from this young man was to his dad's instruction about not viewing pornography? What, what's, what do you think? What do you think this young guy's response really was? I'll do a better job of hiding what I'm just doing. The first stage of addiction, and we'll talk about it, is pleasure. I know that the first time that I saw pornographic images, that there was an intrigue there. And in some ways, I could also consider that to be pleasure. So here's two examples. One mother, my mother, my father, that didn't ever talk to me, another father who in a very powerful and what I would call negative reinforcement way, told his son, this is inappropriate. But he didn't do it in such a way as his son really understood why it was inappropriate. He just knew if he got caught, he was gonna get beat.
1: So so through the education, even being here, there can be a tendency, I'll I'll speak for myself, I have been to many conferences and and read a lot, and there can be fear come up in the heart of this mom. Oh no, my kids are going to, they're going to grow up to be like that Ted Bundy. If I don't control it better, I just can't control everything, I've been learning that. We have seven children and 17 grandchildren, married 41 years, and I have worked darn hard to control everything.
0: So we'll tell you another quick story that's personal to our own family. Now we see a a healthy father, a healthy mother, and a healthy marriage. This happened after I came forward the third, third time. One of our youngest sons, we have two boys that are twins, and I have permission to tell you this story from our son. He was about 16. We were visiting Rill's brother in California. In the middle of the night, he was caught on the computer in the office of his uncle doing porn. We had no idea. We had no idea that he had been involved in pornography. He knew my story. He knew that that I was personally working on recovery. We had talked about the dangers of pornography, yet he was involved. Now, here's a circumstance where he's caught with this pornographic, uh, going through this process of viewing pornography, what do we do as parents? I'm just going to, we won't go into great detail on this story, but one thing that we didn't do was choose to shame, and one thing we didn't do was choose to ignore, and so what we did do was have an opportunity to have an honest, loving conversation about the seriousness of what was going on there, not just was he participating in behavior that was unacceptable, but he was violating someone else's property. He was stealing. And so we, we got into the details of that, and then when he, we had an opportunity to work through that as parents.
1: And with, with my brother and his wife, so the four adults and, the, and our son, and in a very loving way, he apologized to the family members. and. And, to, uh, and then we we said, now you know what, what we'll need to do, and he, we needed to have him talk to our church leader, because we believe in accountability, which he needed to set up that appointment when we got home. It was his choice,
0: it was his choice. But we outlined for him the process of going through understanding the seriousness of this and some processes to be able to bring myself back into a positive, pe- feeling about myself and about my life. There were consequences with his spiritual leader. They were appropriate for the circumstances, but these were choices that he was making. Our objective in these things was certainly not to shame him, but to help him understand the necessity for him to take responsibility for what was going on in his life. And interestingly, part of that opportunity was for me to be able to share some of my own experiences with him as a father, I talked to him about my own experiences with what he was going through and so that he didn't feel like I was pointing my finger at him without recognizing the challenges that he was facing in his own life.
1: And that continued. That continued for some time, for actually a couple of years. Father and son met together usually once a week. They talked about how things were going, how things were going just in general. And, and then actually decided to give him, when he had a 30 days, when he had been without porn and masturbation, he gave him his 30-day chip. And then he gave him his 90-day chip. And when he was about 19, he left actually to serve a mission, and in an envelope, I found all the chips that he had collected. That brought tears to my eyes. He's married with a young baby now, And continues to be very honest about his behavior and feelings. We're 20 minutes in. Okay, so lovingly connected, accessible, and responsive—that is so critical for parents. Accessible and responsive. Um, So, but the, the best for protecting children is that there is an honest and connected marriage. If you want to protect children, an honest, connected marriage. Loving, educated, and praying for spiritual guidance. Praying for spiritual guidance as we are working with our children. That education and that guidance will greatly benefit every child.
0: Now does this conversation kind of strike the fear into parents being prepared to talk to their children about the very important and spiritual nature of our human sexuality? and the dangers associated with that, and the importance of internal filters and boundaries. As you sit here and think about your own preparedness to do that, and your own feelings of anxiety about how am I going to do that with my own children, um, the, the circumstances that we find ourselves in is most of us don't know enough about this issue to feel comfortable talking about it. I congratulate everyone that's here at this conference today to learn more, and so that there's a greater level of, of comfort and willingness to talk about this openly within a family environment and beyond. And so it's the responsibility of all of us to learn more about this issue, which is literally affecting every family on this earth. However, fear
1: way. will lead to shame, <clears throat> and it will cycle. So, fear should be taken totally out of this by education and putting that fear aside, we can do this.
0: Okay, let's start at the front of the handout that you've got, okay? Uh, All of you might recognize these people in this shot. Are there any secrets in this family up here? Okay, we all know the secret. Are there any secrets in my family? Were there any secrets in my family? I first saw pornography, age six. I became more interested in it. And the first stage of addiction is pleasure, according to Dr. Mark Butler. First stage of addiction is pleasure. And the next stage is discovering that I can change my mood by participating in the behavior. Over a period of time, I discovered both of those. I also discovered that my behaviors were escalating and I was unable to stop. So I was continuing behavior, but as a young person, I didn't really see the danger. But I was continuing. So, is using pornography a problem? I had continued on in my behaviors to include pornography, masturbation, and then I had inappropriate relationships in high school, and I had had very limited experience with circumstances that would be um, beyond that, very, very limited exposure to an adult establishment, actually, someone very close to me, my brother took me to one. But all those experiences were experiences that I had that I felt shame about. I went and reported those to my ecclesiastical leader before I got married. I met the woman that I love and that I wanted to marry and I knew that immediately after I met her. But I was afraid to tell her anything about my experience with pornography, masturbation, and other inappropriate sexual activity. And so after I talked to my ecclesiastical leader about it and I asked him the question, do I really need to tell her about this? Because I'm here, I'm confessing, and I'm never going to do it again. And we both decided, and I'm not going to judge his his inspiration, but we both decided if I was never gonna do it again that I probably didn't need to tell her. So she came into our relationship without any understanding that I had had experience with pornography. I had no clue that my experiences with pornography and masturbation were to the point that I was relying upon it, not just for pleasure, but for mood changing experiences and so I felt going into our marriage that if I as if I'm marrying the woman of my dreams and we're through our, because of our marriage all of my sexual desires are satisfied I'm not going to really feel like I need to have sex outside of my marriage am I is that true many people many 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 young people believe that. Is that true real
1: it wasn't that, that wasn't
0: true. true and so most young people that are involved in behaviors believe that marriage will solve the problem. It will not. It will even accent the problem. It will even escalate the problem because what happens when we get married? Additional stresses come into our life because now we're working to be, learn how to work together. And that's part of the marriage process.
1: And shame and hiding will, will perpetuate the addiction.
0: So my shame and hiding drove me into secrecy in our relationship. Is pornography a problem? So let's talk about this just a little bit. Is the, we, we talked about this negative relationship, and this is a quote from Jeff Stewart, the impact of addiction and betrayal trauma on a family is something that's difficult to keep secret. The details surrounding the nature of the addiction may never surface, but the collateral damage of strained relationships, lack of connection, and other consequences are difficult to hide from children living in the home. They know something is different even though they might not know why.
1: And our children, seven children, all married now um, have benefited greatly. When, When Jeff said, you know, if we've raised our children, is it over or is our opportunity gone? No. Our children, in fact, one of our daughters last week had a trigger. She was triggered. She's married with four little kids and she called and I could tell she was triggered by something someone had said and she needed to reach out to to me and to her dad and she said, I know now, I have a better relationship than I've ever had with my father. That's how I know that he's good, that he's okay, that he's safe for me.
0: So there is an impact on the family even though the behavior may not be known. There is an impact on the relationship between husband and wife even though she may not know or he may not know of the secret in the family in my case my secret was i was living a double life the double life included pornography masturbation and it escalated to adult establishments and then over a period of time adult establishments are really houses of prostitution and my behaviors escalated to prostitution now This happened over a period of time, and I was a traveling guy. I owned my own company, and I traveled all over the world. And in those travels, I learned behaviors to fill time through boredom or anxiousness or stress. I had all these emotional needs, and what was I doing? I was looking to fill these emotional needs with behaviors that were obviously inappropriate and very counterfeit, but they were satisfying a need that I had in the process of that, what I thought I had, and I was unwilling to take care of in a healthy way. So this went on for the first 15 years of our life, our married life. Real knew nothing of it. And she also had concerns about what do we do about this lack of connection in our relationship.
1: Because we went to probably four marriage counselors.
0: Real found at least four marriage counselors oh, because yeah. we needed to learn how to communicate, communicate better. better. Now, Real didn't know anything about my behavior, but what she was feeling is I can't connect with this guy. So certainly marriage counseling is the answer. And it wasn't because I wasn't willing to be honest. So I wasn't honest about who, what I, about the double life. And so how could he help us with an issue that was created by something that no one knew anything about? This is a really powerful quote, it's on your handout, Jill Manning is a wonderful therapist with great experience, written a book called What's the Big Deal About Pornography? She's also testified before Congress. She has a PhD and has studied specifically this issue for many, many years. This is what she says about pornography. Pornography is neither harmless nor helpful. Pornography use is not simply a habit, it's mood altering. Belief changing, relationship damaging, addiction forming, socially harmful, spiritually deadening life crippling practice through which one practices the ways of the adversary is pornography a problem if we look at it in these terms it's life changing and life threatening and pornography doesn't just stay with pornography because sexual addiction doesn't just want more it wants different and so what does different mean now I'd like to just have you look at this let me explain this this is a very simplified version of what you have on your sheet in the center, we see God, and around that, dark, around that, the dark image of psychological, spiritual, biological, and social. We're talking about an individual in that dark area with God in the center. And so we are complex beings and literally are, are powered spiritually by God. And so if this issue is, if this is who we are, What is this issue doing? So we're just gonna quickly go ahead and punch it down. We're gonna put Jill Manning's quote on on this slide and see what it looks like. So, mood altering, belief changing, relationship damaging, addiction forming, socially harmful, spiritually deadening, life crippling. What has happened to the individual that has these components, these complex components? The individual is literally being smothered by this behavior. And in my case, the double life was getting extremely heavy. Who? We're still seeing God in the center, but at this point, who is in the center of my life? Anybody want to venture a guess? The addiction? The addiction? I am very self-absorbed. I am selfish, ish And that is my now I am always in protect mode and so my behaviors become addict behaviors not just acting out but addict behaviors that you see on your sheet and what do they look like lies deceit anger resentment tired all the time that's what happens to a person who's living a double life it's very very heavy and it takes a lot of power out of my existence to be able to maintain that double life And so what you see on this circle right here is a person that's challenged in his life, in this case, with me, with putting forth an image that looks like I'm healthy, but actually knowing that I'm not. And that takes a tremendous amount of energy to do. Now, this tractor is addicted to porn. (laughs) We have to have a little breakup of this session because it gets so quiet. I don't hear anybody breathe. That's why we have to ask questions. But this tractor is addicted to porn. So what does that image suggest? Here we have a very powerful piece of equipment that's designed to do great things. Yet it is completely incapacitated because why? It's stuck. Now. For all of us that have had experience on farms, I grew up on a farm or have been stuck before, what happens when I try to get myself out of this by sitting on there and spinning my wheels? Spin
1: your wheels, folks. What
0: happens? Go lower and lower and lower. I'm just sitting there going nowhere, going lower because I'm trying by myself. Now, you see a tractor in the background. It's going to take about four more of those to get that tractor out. But here's the point. That addicted tractor is not going to get unstuck. By itself so is recovery possible and the answer is the submission of one's will is really the only unique personal thing we have to place on God's altar the many other things we give are actually the things we have that he has already given or loaned to us so if you look at the next if you look at the next couple of ideas what we're going to talk about here is recovery So, we're going to get into the recovery mode. We can see that addicted tractor looks pretty incapacitated. But I'd like to give another quote that's a little bit on this same step, and that is You may be powerless over your addiction, but you are responsible for your recovery. You may be powerless over your addiction, but who's responsible for my recovery? My wife? Oh, I try. (laughs) My ecclesiastical leader? My therapist? My friend down the street? Who's responsible for my recovery? Anybody got an answer to that? Me. I am the person that's responsible for my own recovery. So, this this has to be my attitude. Faith plus courage plus action plus grace equals recovery from sexual addiction. Now, there are actions, but my attitude has to be there. I may be powerless, but it's still up to me to do it. So I'm gonna, we're gonna now get into some issues here that talk about recovery. And in my own case, there were three attempts. We're gonna run out of time here, so we're gonna have to be very quick. The first time that I attempted to break away from this addiction, I was age 36. I came forward and I disclosed all to my wife. And you can imagine the trauma in that experience. I disclosed to my ecclesiastical leader, I wanted to stop the behavior. There were serious consequences for me, but I wanted to move through this. And the advice that we got, Not understanding what we were dealing with was don't look back, repent, move forward in your life. Don't talk about this anymore. That was the advice that we got. And
1: forgive.
0: And forgive. So repent and forgive, move forward, don't talk about... Now, I had no clue what addiction was, but I obviously was addicted, but I, I wanted to stop the behavior. So that was the first time and that's exactly what we did. In fact, when real subsequent time passed, Hey, how are you doing? I'm doing fine. Three years later, I was back. That's right, and we're not supposed to talk about it, remember? And so the three years later, I, I didn't change my lifestyle at all. I continued traveling man, and after a period of time, I f- the white knuckling of wanting to stay away from the behavior wore down, and I went back to behavior.
1: No, it's important to understand that you can be white knuckle sober. And he could be for three years. Now everyone around, if he was going to therapy, everybody would have applauded, white knuckle sober. But sober is not recovered, or recovering. We never say recovered, because this is is, a process. Sober Sober is, is, I'm not doing that. I can't, I can't, I won't.
0: A critical element of recovery, but it is not recovery. But it's the first part of recovery, because if we continue in behavior, we're continuing, and Dr. Hilton will talk about this later in the day, our brains are not going to have a chance to heal. The compulsions are not going to go away if we continue in this behavior. So we have to figure out how to stop. But anyway, three years, but I was back in the behavior. Seven more years went by before the chains got too heavy, and I came forward again. So there's a lot to this story, and if you want to read some more details, the real book is giving more details than what we'll give you here today. But I came forward 10 years later after the first time because the chains were too heavy. The difference this time was real took charge of my recovery. She chose to stay and I decided to let her find the therapist, read the books. I went to a two or three 12 step meetings and thought they aren't for me. There's a long story to that. We had some therapy, cognitive behaviors about all we talked about don't think about that anymore. And Three years later, I was back into behavior. Our story's got to shorten down here. So now I'm a two-time loser. We have seven children. I've moved my family on the run. It's a very serious problem for me because I'm now gonna lose my family. That's my feeling. I can't disclose this because I'll lose everything if I do. But about eight years pass from that second disclosure and I'm, I'm back in behavior. Now I have a serious interruption in my life. The interruption is I'm arrested for picking up a prostitute. So that arrest was the, a very powerful moment, as you might imagine. I literally saw myself, I thought, standing there in handcuffs and began to contemplate, really, what in the world is going on with me? Is this really me? And. Yet, I still wanted to hide it. The next day or the day after, I went and found an attorney. He told me he could get me off. There's no way they can prove your guilt. I had a moment of relief, but I couldn't live with it. So, on September 11th, which is just a couple of three days ago, I had what I will consider to be a spiritual experience. And that's after I began to contemplate who I am. Do I, did I believe in God? Do I believe in God? And that's a very curious experience to have to actually ask oneself, about my belief. And as I asked myself questions like, do I believe in God? Will, he, will I meet him? Will he know me? Will I tell my story? I could only answer yes to all those questions because I'm a believer, and as I asked myself the questions, I could not deny. And so that event of being arrested put me on a pathway that was different than any pathway I had, I had ever been on. I had a change of heart. I determined that no longer could I live this lie and something different had to happen. And the only thing that I could think about in that process then on the night of September 11, 2005 was I made a decision and the decision was, I will come forward. That's all that I knew how to say. That's all that I could, that's the only thing that I knew is I would just, I said to myself, I will come forward. And the moment that I said that to myself, my feelings of can't do, I will lose everything, this is the worst thing that's ever happened to me in my my life, changed. I didn't see a light, I didn't hear a voice, I just had a change of feeling. And the feeling was, it's going to be okay. But I had made the decision that I would come forward. And So what I did in this process was, instead of focusing completely on myself and all my problems, I changed my focus to, what is powering my life, and who am I, and what is my relationship to this power that I know as God. And so we'll talk a little bit now about recovery, honest, humble, accountable, and willingness to serve God and others. It started out with, at that moment, I made the decision that I would tell Ril exactly what was happening by nine o'clock the next morning. It was a Sunday morning. There's a story in that, but I did follow through. I delayed until five minutes to nine, but I did follow through. (laughs) Someone says that that's addict behavior to be procrastinating to that degree.
1: We're going to talk um, a little bit about what I was going through. Um, The third time, I basically was done. Um, It had been 32 years of marriage. I had been trying to fix the relationship in whatever way I could. Um, The first time he'd come forward, Uh, I was pretty naïve, I had never even known anyone personally who had had such behaviors. I was naïve, I was blown out of water, and I stuffed my emotion deep. I cried very softly and thought, forgive, 70 times 7, okay, I can do this. And that experience, I recognize as I look back now, I had a lot of fear. And I, I wanted desperately to keep, you know, put more nice notes, loving notes, on his pillow and in his suitcase, and be be more. Do I, I, Apparently, I need to be more sexual. Apparently, I need to be better at keeping the house clean. I need to keep the house, the kids, and you know, I need to take care of things better. Because somehow, I believed that this was my responsibility in some way. I learned on the second time, it was not my fault. I cannot control it, and I cannot fix it. That was really hard for me. And as women who want to really get in, and we can work with things, and we can help change things, and I, I thought, so the second time, I was mad for the first time. I was angry. I'm not an angry person, but um, when I wrote my book, the girl the girl that was helping me said, how did you feel? And I said, I wanted to beat the hell out of you. <laughs> and I said, well, Oh, can't put that in the though. No. <laughs> I don't want people to think, I swear, actually. I grew up in Montana, you know, I, I can say a few of those words. But, but no, knowing, you know, and I, I, I thought, literally, If I could beat the literal hell out of her, I'd feel better, and so would he. And, but I didn't, of course. I didn't even throw anything. But I was so frustrated. (laughs) But at the same time, I was on my face, sobbing my eyes out. Because of the lies, the betrayal, and the effort that I've been putting into the family. And so here came Strong me, but I believe also that not it was just not going to be about me. It was going to be me and God, because He apparently it was the first time that there was any thought He has no control over this, and so somebody's got to help him. Who was it going to be? The person who had been most damaged, right? But that kind of I'm going to have strength and pull through, put him in my hand, card, and occasionally, I'd say to myself, I am pulling this whole family, and you've got your legs dragging out. You're not you're not with us. You're not helping. And yet, I still thought that something could change. Girl's talking now about her feelings on the second On the second time. So the third time, it was like, a couple of tears and I thought, and I literally had a surrender moment on our front lawn. Where I turned my hands to heaven and said, Take him. I can't do this anymore. There was a feeling of sadness Mm -hmm. and it's over. But there was a feeling that I knew only one thing. I didn't know where I was going to live. I didn't know what, I figured the marriage was over. I felt so much sadness. However, there was one thing I knew. God loves me, and he would take care of me and my family. I didn't know what that meant for him. And and so the picture that you see um, that we started with of the two canoes, I realized I was in my own. I've been really trying hard to have my husband's canoe together. And the more I recognize, I know that we are in our own. However, we choose whether we're going in the same direction or not. (coughs) Thankfully, the story of the past nine years is that we have chosen to go in the same direction. But that's been a lot of nine years of hard work. And so, what is betrayal trauma?
0: We need, to, we need to talk about recovery for just a second. And it's that, the same.
1: You can see that it's the same.
0: Let's, let's talk about recovery from sexual addiction. Oh. We really haven't gotten into that. So this diagram that you see here, the third time that I came forward, I recognized again that I needed to put God back in the center. I didn't recognize that to the degree that it was really happening. But I really did steps one, two, and three in my sleepless night on the night of September 11th where I recognized that my life was out of control. That's step one. Step two, that I believed in God. And step three, that I would surrender and let him help me. And that surrender was basically an admission that I would come forward and be honest. So honesty, humility, accountability, and willingness to surrender to God. That is the attitude that I have to have in recovery. All along the pathway, I have to maintain that attitude. The challenge is, is this is a very difficult pathway, and you saw the picture of the tractor that's addicted. On my own, I can't resolve this. I need help. And so you can see those areas on the outside in the blue. They're areas that I need to take responsibility in my own efforts of recovery, managing my own recovery, taking charge of my own recovery, with a willing heart says, I will gain education. What am I dealing with? I'm dealing with an addiction. What does that mean? Spiritual guidance, where is that going to come from? And I'd like to just have you think about it in these terms for just one second. Can I just give you a scripture out of the Bible? Spiritual guidance. John 14, 26, But the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I have said unto you. Now, if we think about spiritual guidance... I know that we often hear we need to pray more, we need to do scriptures more. Is that true? Absolutely true. And it is critical in in my own efforts of recovery that I took that to heart and understood more about what that meant. And so then what about qualified therapy? And that's a challenge because what does qualified therapy look like? Just a very quick story because we are so out of time. When I chose recovery the third time, and I knew that I needed a qualified therapist. The Lord's hand was in my effort to find qualified help and the right 12-step group. The therapist that we found, out, found was qualified, one of the great therapists, in my opinion, in our opinion. But I, we went to his office. I asked Ril if she would go. She agreed <clears throat> to be there, at least. I told the therapist my story, and it took about 50 minutes of the first hour session. And after I had told him my story, then he doesn't. He never interrupted me, and after I had finished, he didn't even look at me. He looked at Rill and said, "Can you stay with him if he's in recovery?" Now, that was just like. What was your response?
1: What does that look like? Because if I ask if he's okay, he lies. He could have been with a prostitute two days ago, and he tells me he's fine. I don't. Li- I'm not safe with this. So, what, uh, what is recovery, how, and how will I know? I have learned how I know. I became educated on what the, the addiction is, and what my husband's behaviors are when he is in his addiction. Not, I've never seen him act out, never once, and I've never had any proof that he acts out. Most uh, sexual addicts are really good at covering. And so how am I going to be safe? How am I going to be safe? And he said, you will know. I said to him about three years later, Todd, do you tell that to every couple who walks in your door? You're going to know. He said, no. God told me to tell you that. And one of the, the things that we Qualified therapy is a good therapist can be one of our greatest allies in recovery. This is from Patrick Carnes. In fact, I encourage most recovering addicts to work with a therapist who has a deep commitment to the 12 steps and an appreciation for the spirituality of recovery. I had an appreciation that I didn't even understand from our therapist that he was getting inspiration that what I needed to hear was a very simple, you will know. How do I know, even nine years later? Because I can go to fear that I'm being tricked, that I'm being manipulated, that I'm being lied to, if I don't work my recovery. And my recovery helps me to understand that I've become educated on what the, what the uh, behaviors are, like I said, but I also trust my instincts now. I learn to trust my instincts. When I believe that I don't feel safe, because my husband is not an angry addict. He's a disconnected one in his addiction. And so there are some behaviors that I've learned to understand, which are, you're not safe. And I keep a boundary around my safety. If I don't feel safe, I see it, which is really hard for me to be honest with my feelings, and where I'm at and what I need. And if I, being true to myself, not being mean, not being hurtful, but just saying, I'm not feeling safe, I need to find some safety here. I need to detach with love. And we've done this, even a couple of weeks ago, where I didn't feel safe about something. I spoke what it was. I said, I've got to detach here because I'm not feeling safe. And it's not about behavior. I mean, it's not about acting out. It's about behaviors that trigger me. And so, that, I'm okay. And I know, being true to myself and God, I can be honest with that. And it's okay. When Jeff was talking about a an in-house separation, we call that uh, therapeutic separation. It's not, it doesn't mean there's a foot out at the, in the divorce door. It means we're working on this. This is healthy living. This is help.
0: One more point on the recovery of a person seeking recovery from sexual addiction is the power of 12-step. And I can't emphasize in my own recovery the dramatic nature of how important that has been in my own life. But I was led, I believe, and truly believe, to a good 12-step group when I was honestly seeking. So we had qualified therapy, a great therapist, And I found a great 12-step group, and I never missed a meeting, ever. And so it isn't the meeting so much, but it's it's learning the steps and applying them to my life and working with a sponsor, understanding how to surrender because I am working on understanding the spiritual nature of my addiction. And that's foreign to a lot of people. What do you mean the spiritual nature of your addiction? I'm learning to understand the spiritual nature of my addiction and that the recovery is spiritual. And where's the best place to learn that? in places where I am going to be spiritually fed, and one of those places is working the 12 steps. Let me just run this one by you. Recent science has revealed that we can literally change our brain by retelling our story so that it includes new perceptions, new understandings, and new conclusions. As we rewrite our story, we rewire our brain by building new, more functional neural pathways. Over time, as we continue to retell this new story to ourselves and others, We strengthen and deepen those pathways, providing even more support for our healing and recovery. Where would that happen? Where could I tell my story? In a safe place.
1: At the family reunion? Probably not a good idea.
0: At the corner drugstore? No. A 12-step meeting is where that happens. It's a safe place. And uh, And that I will find other people that are experiencing the same things that I am and know me. They can empathize with me. They can understand me. And I am not going to be fearful of their reaction as I talk to them. So when we talk about these actions of recovery, spiritual guidance, we can talk about what that means. And it's broad, th- qualified therapy, etc. cetera. Twelve-step is fundamental. Now, we, we could, like, do a... We'd love to do a whole 12-step meeting. We'd all just join in. But my name is Stephen, by the way. Hi, Stephen. And so we... but. But if we can't emphasize the value of that enough in our own recovery.
1: And, and for me, too. Uh, you know, Jeff showed the, the tortoise with the, the rabbit on top, the hare on top. I love that. Because actually, Stephen, Stephen kind of took off when at the last time he came forward. And I didn't know if we were going to stay together. It was going to be one day at a time for a long time. Uh, And and he actually moved out to the camper for a while, on his own. nice camper. Nice camper. You know, that story. It had a heater and a bed. Um, But but he started going to 12-step every week. It was the 4th of July, and and the the kids knew where Dad was because he had told them that each individually, there's his story of the third time, which was really hard and extremely healing for our family. And as they watched down, going to 12-step no matter what was going on, working his recovery, we went to therapy for
0: two to three years, him a little longer than
1: us together, and I didn't start 12-step until five years ago. So about four, three and a half years in, I thought, well, we'll start some 12-step groups and give some space, but certainly I don't need it. My life is not unmanageable. Talk about denial. And and when I started actively working 12-step, I probably have learned in the past five years more about myself, understanding the how to be true to myself, um, how to set appropriate and healthy boundaries, how to change the things about me that cause other people pain, and take my own accountability. I've learned more about myself probably in the last two years than I did in the first three. Stephen continues to go to two to three meetings a week, and I, I never want to miss mine. And that has been probably the, the basis, the therapy was an excellent place to get us educated and get us off to a good start. But when they say, we practice these principles in all our affairs, that means in every part of my life. I practice these 12 steps in every part of my life, and I work with my sponsor, I still call her. At least, sometimes every other week, sometimes a couple of times during the week. Depends on what's going on, what I need to work on, and what's going on with my life. If I'm out of serenity, if I lose my serenity, knees, I'm on my phone, and I'm writing it down and putting it in the box. It works. It works every time. That surrender to God blesses my life as well as Stephen working is.
0: Well, just on the last slide, back it up just one time. The interesting thing is is that this, the model for recovery from betrayal trauma doesn't look very different than the model requiring recovery from sexual addiction, does it? They look almost identical.
1: There are different actions on the inside, of course, honest about needs and emotions connected with God and others' healthy boundaries. But the basic... Instead of... Who was, who was in the center of my life in, when I was unhealthy and he...
0: This is a test on your quiz and it's actually on your handout so you can get this question right.
1: Who was in the center of my life? Me? Like him? And the addicted person. The addicted, the addicted spouse. When I realized that, and so many of us who are going through this don't get that, but if I was trying to make it, if I was trying to fix something for him, make him feel better, keep him from doing it, checking his computer, all of those crazy making stuff puts him in the center of my life. If I am angry as everything at him, and he keeps bugging me, and this and this and this and this, and this you know, it's the, the codependency at behaviors, or the contradependency, like, to hell with him. He's still in the center of my life. Mm-hmm. Who must be in the center of my life? There is a higher power. It's God. Heavenly Father. He is, must be the
0: center of my life in order for me to have my serenity. And so, let's just, another quote here, repairing the rewiring of your brain. And remember, betrayal trauma is also a situation that's involving changes to the brain, almost identical to the addiction behavior itself. Repairing or rewiring your brain is a daily, concentrated, repetitive process. Wow. What about those guys that come to a 12-step meeting and say, you know what, I'm here for my 12-week program.
1: Or oh, maybe I can do two in a week. I can graduate in six. There's a few
0: people that laughed a little bit out there. We know it's not a 12-week program. Patrick Carnes in his book, uh, General Path through the 12 Steps, says something like this. There are three stages of recovery. And the interesting one, the third stage is this. When I finally figure out this is a lifetime effort. I finally figured out that this is a lifetime effort. It doesn't mean that I'm dealing with a compulsion every moment like I did when I was carrying and living a double life. But it means that I have to be prepared to deal with life challenges in a healthy way. And how do I do that? So the results are real, measurable, and often remarkable. We trudge, get this one we trudge our way to sanity and serenity. This is not an easy pathway. And a lot of people want to know, when do I get done with this? But I can honestly tell you that it is not painful, as painful on year nine as it was on week one. It's work, but it, is, it has a different feel to it.
1: You can whistle or sing a song.
0: Yeah, let's do that. Okay. Um, We're out of time. And so we're back to what about the kids? We didn't talk a lot about betrayal trauma. We appreciate the things that have been said by Jeff Stewart about betrayal trauma. But you can imagine how it existed in our relationship. And we didn't figure it out specifically until, I'll say four years ago, was the first time that it was ever mentioned. Prior to that, it was always codependent, co-addict behavior. And that isn't correct. We're dealing with betrayal trauma.
1: I certainly have codependent yeah. behaviors, but the, the fear and the trauma exacerbate my codependent behaviors. And so the basis of this was my fear and my trauma. Um, and so you've got this recovering healthy marriage will facil- facilitate effective parenting.
0: So you can see that a, a couple that is in recovery is much better prepared to have a healthy marriage and be able to create an environment in their family that's healthy this is a couple of years ago well, almost, two, yeah. almost two years ago our picture at uh, our son's wedding I don't want to out him but he's the guy we were talking about oh. I just outed him they just had their first child about six weeks ago and he worthily blessed his child last Sunday anyway there is a group of people that are worth living a healthy life for now, is it worth it in my own life, for my own self? Of course. But what about the opportunity to have a joyful relationship with family and not feel like every time that we're together, I'm a hypocrite carrying a weight of a double life? It doesn't have to be that way.
1: So have 17 grandchildren. Our children have said to us, we parent differently because of recovery. I think that's the point. The point is is that through honesty, through transparency, through being humble, honest, connected, and accountable, him, me, all of us, we have a basis for a healthy family, what a great gift. What a great gift to those little grandchildren. But they have parents and grandparents that are actively working. This is not trudging through. I, I like that uh, Patrick Carnes said that, because it, many, some days are just trudging through, and some days I sit down on that path, and I just don't want to move. That's okay. And I tell ladies that I sponsor, you can sit down on the path. You can cry it out, and I will encourage you to do it. Just don't leave it. Just don't leave the path. If your husband refuses to recover, you're going to know. But if you can recover, and he refuses, light attracts light, and darkness will go away. The more light I get inside of me, the more light will be attracted to me. And darkness will go away. You're going to know. However, whatever your situation is, whatever the outcome of that relationship, you can find peace and serenity and joy like you've never had before. I know it. I work with women whose husbands have chosen to go away. It's sad. However, there is a light about these women. That where they had frustration and anger, and control, it becomes peace and serenity. And tools how to help their ch- children. Great gift to all of us.
0: We appreciate the chance to be part of the conference. Thank you very much for being with us. We want you to know that recovery from sexual addiction and betrayal trauma is possible. Recovering marriages is possible and desirable. We make the choice. When I am willing, God is able. What a powerful statement. When I am willing, God is able. We appreciate the chance to be here, thank you. You have been listening to an audio recording from the Northwest Coalition for Healthy Intimacy. For more information or other recordings, please visit our website at www.healthyintimacy.net. Thank you for listening.